Welcome back to yet another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, and I have my fellow co-host with me today, who is Patrick. And we're going to be talking about uh, Season 1, Episode 4 of Twin Peaks. And this episode is entitled The One-Armed Man. Pat, what were your initial impressions of this episode? My initial impressions were... Uh, we got some, got some hints the last episode, which had a lot of stuff, as well as I think two episodes ago, with uh, Sarah Palmer's vision. And then, uh, I felt like this was another episode where we're spending some more time in the daytime. We're seeing the more, we're seeing more intrigue developing, we're seeing more plots progressing. Uh, we're seeing connections between new characters that we didn't see earlier fully. And yeah, we're just uh, getting more attached to all the characters and we're taking very, very small steps towards solving Laura's killing in this episode. Yeah, um, I, I remember, is it at the end of episode one where the gloved hand first makes its debut of pulling out the uh the second half to like the locket or the necklace that Laura had yeah and that's when we see the vision or yeah Sarah Palmer's vision mm-hmm. yeah and it's then, wait what were you gonna say I believe there's two isn't there and then it's episode two or three that we she sees Bob no she sees uh Bob yes Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we finally have a police um, sketch of Bob, finally. <laughs> and it's it's sort of strange that like this um, this being who was only seen by you know two people, that being Sarah Palmer as well as Coop in his dream. Uh, now the identity is gonna slowly make its way out into like the uh, the the deeper side of the community and I my my initial impressions of this uh, episode is that not not too much happened uh, in terms of uh, a lot of the movement that we had in the previous episode or the one before that uh, this one feels like it's sort of taking a little bit of a break to plant some more seeds and to tend to the ones that are already there. Uh, I noticed that uh, Maddie has a lot more presence in this episode, and especially with the tie-ins to uh, Invitation to Love, uh, the second or the the sort of um, parallel plot line in another universe or some sort where it has a bunch of soap opera elements to parody off of. And the plot line of this episode, though, for Invitation to Love, it I feel like it sort of foreshadows a bit of what's going to happen or what is happening with the sawmill uh, up at the Packard residence. And I thought that that was pretty, pretty interesting to follow throughout this episode. And... Aside from that, I, you know, once again, it's a very solid episode. Um, but yeah, not too much happens. A nice detail in the intro with Sarah Palmer at the Palmer residence is uh, Andy is the one doing the sketch. It's a fun little oh. detail. Flush. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, he's, he's like secretly like really good at drawing from description. <laughs> yeah, he like almost nails the drawing too. Yeah. 
So that's the guy. He has, he has his skills, his talents inherent. That makes him a valued member of the team. Mm. Yeah, he, he gets a lot of screen time in this episode, and I feel like it, it's been sort of overdue in a way. And I, I love that that part of this episode, especially with the little tidbits between uh, him and Lucy uh, when they get back to the police station. He asks her like, "Oh, how come I, how come I, you didn't want me to stay last night?" <laughs> and then she just cuts him off and asks him, "Will you be having coffee?" Or, <laughs> and she's like so angry at him. I love that. I love the uh, in that same scene where Lucy's watching *Invitation to Love*. That's like the transition from the Palmer residence. And yeah, she does the big breakdown of the the convoluted plot, which I'm sure we'll start having to do our own little rundowns like that, especially in season two. And I I completely forgot about like this uh the following scene after that where where Cooper's sort of watching Jacoby do an illusion with two golf balls <laughs> it's it's such i love the cinematography in this in the sequence <laughs> and the editing of course too and i'm glad that uh characters such as andy and jacoby and even maddie in this episode are getting a little bit more fleshed out um in, in the previous episode, I believe it, if it wasn't the ending, it was one of the ending scenes where Hooper sees Jacoby at Laura's grave and he laments the fact that, you know, he, or that he, he saw something inside of Laura that really resonated with him. And in this conversation that he has with Cooper, he, they, I feel like they sort of, uh, kind of meets some similar or they they are on this a similar page uh where they know that Jacoby maybe didn't do it although he is definitely still a suspect um however at the end of the conversation we find out that Jacoby was following somebody uh who was possibly linked to Laura and it was somebody in a red Corvette and then of course that Corvette belongs to who else uh, but Leo Johnson. Yeah, they make a nice point later on in the episode. <laughs> they have a character that say like, oh, nice red Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> and then we I believe that this is the first introduction to Gordon Cole, is it? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. It's Albert, Lucy. Not Lucy, Albert and Diane. And it's a great back and forth with the little. They give it like uh, shots of like a back and forth one shots between Cooper and the little telecom device. And yeah, it's uh, I'm looking forward to Gordon showing up. Well, this is this is Truman's Truman's moment where he finally sees who this strange man is, who is Bob, off of the off of uh, the Andy sketch. And I love the dialogue that Cooper has with Truman in this scene where he sort of had some sort of prescience where he could foretell what would happen if he would have been at the Palmer residence during the earlier questioning. Uh, I believe he says something along the lines of being a strong sender <laughs> yes. And that he didn't want to influence Sarah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's a, he's like, this is the man I saw in my dream. He saw this man and this. It's, it's like a slow two shot to one shot. Where he's like, he's explaining stuff. Yeah, I don't want to go. I don't want to go see her this morning because I don't want to influence her. The eyes are too close. <laughs> As he hands the drawing back to Andy. <laughs> He's nothing but business. Yeah. I feel like this man has been going has just non-stop ever since his first day in Twin Peaks. 
I guess that that's um one thing that I'm starting to appreciate more and more about this episode, the more that we talk about it, is um you know, with these slower episodes, they if you view them in, in tandem, like in I guess in chronological order, uh, it really flushes out just how short of a uh, of an amount of time that this this whole trek into Twin Peaks has been. I feel like it's been less than a week uh, since since Laura passed away or was found on that shore. Yeah, so buried her pretty fast. And last episode was so jam packed. But yeah, we get the slower moments. We get we have we've had the the Lucy Andy connection, but now we're getting it more fleshed out. Like oh they're 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 spending evenings together after work. They're not just kinda cute with each other during work. And we're also seeing um what a lot of the other people in Twin Peaks do as well. For instance, at the at the hotel, I think it's called the Timber Hotel. We see, or Timber Falls Motel. Yes. We see Josie staking out the place uh, with a camera, and we eventually find Catherine and Ben sharing some uh, some time alone. In the previous episode, where Josie tries to show Truman inside of the the lockbox that there were two ledgers instead of one, but unfortunately, uh, Catherine got to the true ledger. And hid, hid it away inside of uh, one of her lock or inside of one of her hidden drawers. This relationship that Catherine and Ben have, you could tell that it's purely one-sided in a way. I mean, if if anyone has feelings for one another, it's it might have been from a very long time ago. Uh, but there's I, I could sense like a lot of anger from uh, and resentment from Catherine, like in the way that she talks about Pete, her husband, and you know she calls him Pete the Poodle. And uh, Josie and like I, I feel like Catherine wants to wants to be a good person or is seen as like a, a role model, but she's very resentful of the fact that uh, she doesn't get the respect that she feels she deserves or something like that. Yeah, the Pete the Poodle, because he's acting like a puppy for Josie's attention, which is <laughs> a horrible feeling for being his wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's been she still had a mean streak. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I one other character who sort of gets their due in this episode as well is Hawk. Um, yeah. I feel like he's been sort of on the on the outskirts a bit doing his thing, you know, tracking down the one-armed man, which is the reason why uh, we are at the or the motel to begin with. Um, and he, yeah, he gets, he gets a lot more attention this, this episode around. And I just love anytime he's on screen because he just has this, this calm presence to him all the time, like very dialed back, but also very attentive and mindful of the flow of the world in a way. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, he's already replaced Andy. as like the number three lead investigator from the police force. And then, uh, speaking of Andy, right when they go to knock on um, the oh, yeah. one armed man's uh, hotel room, Andy drops his gun and then it goes off. <laughs> It's a great little <laughs> moment. Cooper jumps. He's like, oh, geez, Andy. <laughs> yeah, the classic. And then he just, Andy just like kind of runs, picks up his gun and just runs out of frame. <laughs> and then they bust into the room and then they see uh, Philip Gerard, or at least that's what his name is right now. Uh, and we find out that he's a shoes salesman and that he does, in fact, have a have a friend named Bob. But it's not the one that they're looking for. And I, I, uh, a quick little thing is that when the Andy's gun goes off, uh, Ben Horn is like peeking at the, the the sound of the gunfire, and Catherine's being mocking. And then uh, 
Ben has that great bit where he pulls out like a, to a small Elvis toy or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to give Elvis a bath. <laughs> He's, yeah, I'm, he's like, well, tell me if there's any bloodshed or something. And he's, or yeah, he's like, I'm gonna go give little Elvis a bath. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he like waves the little Elvis toy thing and drops a uh, casino chip when I jacks. Oh yeah, and then Catherine picks it up. Yeah, yeah, just a great little like, a little kind of comedic transition bit, but like Ben and Jerry's whole thing. It's like they're 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 movers and shakers and plotting and doing highly illegal actions. But uh, there's like a childhood nature to him still. Mm -hmm. His little bat toy. He's going to give <laughs> a, a bath. Yeah, Mr. Gerard. Yeah, we we sort of. Uh, I, I really enjoy this sequence with Gerard because. At first, he comes off as this very unassuming character who is just sort of uh, paving their way through the town uh, in a very transitional nature. Like, they're just going from town to town selling uh, these shoes. And he said he used to be in pharmaceuticals. And that's his sort of tie to... Uh, with Bob, I believe. I'm, I'm not sure... Um, but then we find out the how, or we find out the reason uh, that he no longer has an arm, so that he loses it in a car accident, and that on the arm it had a, a, a tattoo that said "Mom." And during this interrogation between uh, Philip Gerard, Truman, and Cooper, uh, the more he's grilled, the more his, the more the pressure is placed on him, and he begins to crack. So this facade that he's putting on, it seems like there's a lot more going on underneath that he isn't, you know, sharing with them. Which coincidences. Mm-hmm. And then I love the uh, the following scene where, or the, the cut where they're leaving the, the hotel like they had enough questioning, and then Hawk calls Harry over to come and check out uh, some tire tracks and then it's very nonchalant <laughs> like he uh, lets him know that Josie was there mm -hmm. taking out the place and we get a great scene between Audrey and Donna in the bathroom at uh, the high school and yeah, the, 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 the the wonky bathrooms that are of great debate are the whole is it the whole school yeah the whole school this part of the whole school <laughs> I'm looking at frames now in the hallway also has that the red line pattern. Yeah, the entire like look of the school is iconic. I love all the colors. I love all the lines and the reflections and it just seems so pristine. Like to me, it looks like what a school would look like inside of a dream. Like very polished, but Something's off. Like, why is the bathroom wallpaper the same as the hallways? Typically, it's different. And it's like, what's up with these weird zigzag lines, like coming off, like out of nowhere? And we get a bit of an alliance going on between Donna and Audrey. You know, Audrey lets her know what she's been doing because I, I feel like in order to she has a bit of an, an agenda, like aside from wanting to do like her own investigative work, she also wants to aid Cooper in his investigation while also connecting with a lot of her classmates, possibly. Um, and she lets Donna know that Laura was seeing James behind Bobby's back. And, you know, even though like Donna already knows this, um, and she lets her know about the perfume counter at her father's department store and that Laura was possibly linked to it and possibly even one-eyed jacks. Hey, the, uh, I think Donna, Donna kind of stonewalls her <laughs> on this reviewing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's maybe it's because I know what happens later. There's another like Donna kind of kicks up her investigation as well progressed through the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's kind of like tight lipped. Yeah, that's because I think it's because James is still the risk of being incriminated. But Audrey just keeps like sharing like, here's my here's my leads. I'm doing it to impress Cooper. But then she also still brings up her brother. And his connection to Laura. When she's describing the hint about J- Jacoby. Like she plants like the, do- the Dr. Jacoby thought into Donna. And then talks with the pu- perfume counter, which is kind of not as focused on by Donna. But yeah, it's, it's a rare interaction. I don't think do we get a lot more of these between these two? Yeah, I don't think so. Do we? I I don't think so, honestly. Um, which is weird seeing this sort of interaction because, you know, during like, yeah, during my initial run through of it all, I always wondered why there wasn't more interactions between Audrey and her classmates, because it seems like she's sort of always off in her own little world. So seeing this, it, it was like, oh, like finally, like she, you know, we get to see her actually being you know in like the final stages of uh of adolescence you know sharing that with like other classmates albeit in a very uh unfortunate you know under unfortunate circumstances with laura but yeah at the end of the scene like donna seems very suspicious of audrey still and it's like why she i don't think she did it no yeah yeah I, but, and then I, I think it, it could be the real life drama. Wasn't the real life set drama? Yeah, yeah, there was um, a lot of drama on set, I believe, between um, Kyle McLaughlin, Sherilyn Fenn, who plays Audrey, and then Laura Flynn Boyle, who plays Donna, because Kyle and Laura were dating at the time. Yeah. And I believe that she voiced her hesitance to have like anything go on between Audrey and Cooper's character. And I guess that that adds, I mean, it, it clearly adds a lot of tension between the two in this scene, even knowing that detail as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess we'll just have to see where it goes from there. <laughs> I, I, I've been waiting till we get to firewalk with me. Mm-hmm. I want to get this on record now. The, the actress who plays Donna in Firewalk with me. Mm-hmm. Way better Donna. Far <laughs> better. I, I agree as well. I believe uh, uh, the actor's name is Maura Kelly. Yes. And she's she, she looks like a literal child still. So mm-hmm. it just makes it makes the stakes so much higher. And everything's so much more unsettling, especially in Firewalk with me. Yes. Speaking of uh, speaking of Firewalk with me, like, are what do you think we're? How are we going to tackle this? Like, once we finish up with season one, are we going to go through season two and then go with Firewalk with me, or what do you what do you think, Pat? Forgot Firewalk with me is after season two. (laughs) So yeah, we just got to do an order. I think. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) That's going to be a while. <laughs> It'll be a ways out. But yeah, I just wanted to get that out there now. Like <laughs> Every time I see this Donna, I I, I always kind of insert the firewalk with me Donna in the place a little bit. Yeah, um, for anyone who hasn't seen Firewalk with me or is this is their first time hearing it, it's the prequel movie that was made after seasons one and two of Twin Peaks. And in it, the uh, I believe, well, Donna's character was replaced with a different actor. Of course, it went from Laura Flynn Boyle, who plays uh, Donna in season one through two, uh, with the actor Maura Kelly. And um, yeah, it's going to be a very long time <laughs> before we can like even shed a bit more light on on. Uh, it's going to be so difficult not to talk about stuff that happens in Firewalk with me just because it. It ties everything up. Um, <laughs> oh my god, we have like 20, 20 something episodes to get through. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll get there. 
Yeah, oh yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> but um in the and in the following scene, we you know, we go from the bathroom of the high school to the some sort of like transitional quarters of the of the courthouse uh and and the prison where we see Norma's husband Hank. Uh it's his big day. It's going to determine if he gets parole or not and I'm not really sure if they mentioned why he was in prison to begin with uh, they perhaps alluded to it but I'm not sure yeah, his his uh his speech in front of the parole mentioned like a pristine car and fate and all this stuff where he's kind of saying none of it was his fault even though there's like a, a stolen car or transporting of drugs or something in a stolen car or something <laughs> A vagrant nobody knows is killed while sleeping by the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's basically minimizing the fact that this person was was killed by calling them a vagrant. Yeah. And it was all a facade. Yeah. I feel so bad for Norma in this scene. Oh, yeah. And a little aside, Hank... There's... there's and then Ed and Hank. Norma, Norma's two men... I have like a weird familiar connection to both. Really? Yes. Not not literally. But like my 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 dad, my father had Ed's like character energy, a little more a little more high energy, but like that the way Ed carries himself. Mhm. But he literally had like in the 90s he had that look of Hank and he dressed just like Hank throughout my whole life. <laughs> especially when Hank, especially when we see Hank later on. Like, he thought, like that's literally the outfits of my dad. I have photos of him <laughs> and all that stuff. <laughs> I was just reminded of that seeing Hank for the first time on screen. I was like, oh, it's this guy. <laughs> just every time I see him, it takes me back. <laughs> I think that helps my connection to Norma as a character. Mm -hmm. I really yeah, like uh, a lot of the, the shots showing off Hank in this scene. Like it, there's this one partic particular shot where it's uh, on his hands and he's like holding the the domino, and then it tilts up to his face, and then all of a sudden we get his lawyer clapping the back of his shoulder, and oh, it's such a brilliant, it's such a brilliant move. And like sequencing and then he sort of gives like a look of a quiet of quiet victory in a way menacing cinematography for Hank like when he yes. enters through the door down the hall Norma's perspective and then when they're whispering there's like a certain still you could find of him just like towering over Norma from the angle mm-hmm Obviously, just... he'll change. Where it's yeah, he's 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 not genuine. He's clearly leaning on her, mm -hmm. just to get him out of the pinch. And it's like, what can she actually do? I I feel like if she decided not to, you know, be present at this hearing, things could have gone very sour for Norma. Uh, perhaps by somebody on the outside that Hank has ties to. So yeah, she's definitely being backed into a corner with this and the look on her face at the end of the scene like it just feels the fate of what's gonna play out for who knows how long um between the two and it's 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 already creating a, a, a bit of a divide between you know Norma's plans for the future you know with her and Big Ed uh, the great this is a great focus poll Where she's kind of, she's like, her acting is very subtle. She has like a kind of smirk. She sits, sat in the back of the room. And they focus, pull back to her. She does her things of like, like, like she's doing like the bare minimum. She's not standing up. She's in the back of the room. So I can give him a job. Uh, you know, I know the boss. She's kind of tough or something. 
And then she's like done being, she's done trying. And then she leans forward when Hank is doing his little sob story towards the end. She like leans in with like kind of a fear or attention of like, oh man. Great, great acting, great cinematography. Yeah, it just jumped out in the slow episodes. There's some more humorous, laid back, character driven stuff, but there's also just great filmmaking. Mm hmm. Yeah, that especially with the, the comedic aspects, this episode is <laughs> there's so many brilliant moments, um, especially in the following scene where uh, Cooper and Truman go to the vet veterinary veterinarian clinic and um, they're trying to follow up on this lead of a certain Dr. Lidecker, Bob Lidecker and you know, we get to see a, a little bit of a snapshot of the sort of pets that go in there. We see a llama uh, some birds a cat, an iguana on the ground. The floor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did, to be honest, I didn't even realize that there was an iguana on the floor up until just now. You know, I have the, the screen pulled up, but <laughs> that's amazing. Um, there's, a, there's a girl with like a, is it a bunny or a cat just sitting on the steps? Yeah. <laughs> it's so sweet. Aid to the bet, aid to the beast incarnate. That's yeah. the, that's the quote on the sign. Huge. That's clear. That was clearly from Lynch, and they just <laughs> threw it up there. <laughs> There's a big fire hydrant in one of the corners. The floor's carpet too, which is pretty funny. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> and then that brilliant moment where uh, Truman pulls Cooper to the side, uh, asking you know a bit more about it, and then all of a sudden the llama crosses between the two, and then. <laughs> Cooper and the llama have a brief stare down. <laughs> this is brilliant. And yeah, the the sweet old secretary lady. They just walk in, ask about Bob, get pulled away, and then he comes back. He says, I need all your documents. Yeah, so I, I guess that with this scene, it's all just like lining up to find out who owns that particular bird that had that left a uh, claw marks or puncture marks on Laura's body and then we transition into the Johnson residence where Bobby and Shelly are doing their thing I don't know if it's it's is it still in style are we fully back in the 90s or 2000s but the character outfits and all that stuff is great it's like the it's like the, the work shirt on yeah, it says, I think it says, does it say Dick or Slick on the name tag? Yeah, it says Dick. Yeah. <laughs> Heel undershirt, sleeves rolled up. Fashion is on point. <laughs> Character design, all that stuff. Yeah, I feel like the unfinished house really lends itself to it, too. Like with all the plastic liners on the on the beams and everything like that. I think it just adds to like the the low fineness of the scene. Kitchen has like a mushroom wall. <laughs> and then Shelly uh, lets Bobby know about the bloody shirt that Leo has as well. And then they have the yeah, they have a little Audrey Donna moment where they're sharing their theories. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, then they kind of turn it to their own little plot pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of hidden agendas going on. Uh, for instance, like once again with the Packard Mill between Catherine and Ben, uh, with the taken or er, with uh, Shelley and Bobby trying to you know get Leo off of their trail permanently, and then trying to figure out what's going on with Laura from the uh, perfume counter. There's there's so many. I, I, they do such a brilliant job of like making all of these uh, points connect up, uh, especially with like pacing. And it, it reminds me of what um, what uh, Cooper was talking about with Truman in the previous scene, where he says that uh, the shortest distance between two points 
is not necessarily the best or something like that. Yeah, a straight line isn't always the shortest trip between two points or something. Yes, yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and yeah, there's. It's refreshing still, for the show that came out so long ago. That like mm-hmm. there's these there's these through lines set up, but they're, they're pursuing the one arm man, which is like an mm-hmm. homage to fugit the fugitive. And then, they find him in this episode, and he's like, "Oh my, I'm I know a Bob. Yeah, he's a veterinarian. Best one in the area. He's in the hospital." And then they go to the same veterinarian, and that's where Cooper's like, "Yeah, the documents are here." The bird that was. Oh, the bird that uh, bit or was on Laura's shoulders is like, it's all connected. He's like, he's like, no, this is the veterinarian because of the dream. And he's still pursuing that lead versus like taking out the perfume counter, solving the uh, one eyed Jack connection immediately and all that stuff. He's following his intuition. And then mm-hmm. the more normal characters are the ones who are kind of doing the more footwork, detective work. Like, yeah, Audrey's like, doing a lot of that. And even uh, delegating out a lot of the more mundane tasks, you know, entrusting these very important tasks with, uh, with like, co-workers such as uh, Lucy going through the Lidecker files, trying to figure out uh, who owns parrots. And (laughs) even uh, I love the way that he views the entire police department as an extension of himself because like they're all a part of the same team. And he notices uh, whenever people have like certain shortcomings, for instance, uh, Andy with firing a weapon, he wants to bring everyone up onto the same level to make sure that they are in pristine uh, condition and that they, I don't know, are running at 100%. And I love that. And Cooper does it in such a way where it's not embarrassing. He doesn't um, lambast anyone for for these shortcomings. He simply does it out of concern and care. And I feel like that's like the proper way to lead as well as to just create like a very welcoming and growth-oriented atmosphere. He makes like a team drill. The sheriff's out in the field, like Hawk and Andy go up first. Mm. He he includes himself in the practice, even though he's not in need of it. I really enjoy the the firing uh, scene where they go downstairs and then we get like a little bit bit more of a glimpse into the police department. I love how I like, like they, they just have a bunch of Christmas decorations as they walk down. That too and I, I like the I like the friendly energy. It's like when you shoot hoops together as friends. Mm-hmm. Or Hawks like, "Oh, nice gun." <laughs> They're all <laughs> And then Andy takes the moment of like, now that we're in the basement, being being boys, being <laughs> dudes, he wants to talk about Lucy. <laughs> I love how he how he's very open about it as well. Like it's a safe space for all of them. Yeah, he's like, I can't figure it out. And then I think Cooper's line. It's like, it's love. It's love, Andy. There's no logic at work here. <laughs> Just let it be or something. <laughs> And then Hawk's just like, amen to that. <laughs> they all, they exchange taking turns firing. And I like, uh, between Truman and Cooper, after Hawk and Andy have had their turns, Cooper shares a little bit more of his uh, past history in, in the field of love. What does he say? He says, uh, I knew someone once who helped me understand commitment and the responsibilities and the risks. And he just has like such a lovely way of putting it. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a great. That's another great shot. Like he has a he has oh. a the, the the one lighting Caravaggio esque. Mm-hmm. He's and like he taught me the pain of a broken heart, and then he just pulls out the gun and just fires off, no yeah. flinching whatsoever. Just turns, whips it out, shoots. And then immediately the style to lower the headphones around the neck. 
Like, I always wonder how much of this is intentional, not. Yeah, they're looking uh, at the, the results. And then Hawk coming in with the words of wisdom. Yeah. One woman can make you fly like an eagle, and another can give you the strength of a lion. But only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder, and the wisdom that you have known a singular joy. <laughs> He's like, I wrote that for my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it, it, it spins on your expectations. <laughs> like, it's like a, is this like an old saying or old? Is this a passed down little like poem about love? And he's like, oh, I just wrote that. Yeah, he's like, just a, just as like a little aside from my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, she's a doctor at a university or something. That's <laughs> <laughs> like you. It's like awesome, Hawk. Just yeah, I love the energy it captures so successfully. Mm -hmm. it's a positive <laughs> male friendship Angle. I love I love um, how Lucy is just as much a part of this whole like friend dynamic too um, especially like when it comes to the shot of the of the loudspeaker it's like such a funny framing too and she she tells everyone how She's having difficulty going through the records because all of the names aren't listed by the owners. It's listed by the first names of all the pets. Mm. <laughs> it's such a quirky, but it, it's so believable inside of this town that hasn't ever had to deal with um, a lot more of these shadier occurrences that are now coming to light. And they're being forced to do things differently because the old ways no longer suit them. Yeah, it makes sense the veterinarian would just know the animals by like, oh, let's see. Here's Waldo. <laughs> he's, he's like, yeah, he, he, he's given the animals more personhood than the people bringing them in. <laughs> and then, yeah. and we get some moments between Shelly and Norma. Of course, like sur the surrogate family. Of uh, the feeling of... of a familiarity as well as a home at the double R diner, which it feels like the the dad who has been away for a very long time, he's getting ready to come back home. And unfortunately things aren't gonna be the same for them anymore. Great line, I got one man too many, or what is it? <laughs> Something like that. And then everyone's favorite character wanders in. Oh boy. <laughs> James and he's brooding. I love this little moment that Doc Hayward has. Where he's like he's like yelling out to Donna from like the kitchen or something. He's like, who who the hell ever heard of a diet lasagna? I also I wanted to touch on in the background with Norma and Shelly and James in the diner, we we get to see some uh Air Force men. Um, not army fatigues, but like navy suits, background characters, mm -hmm. just setting up other connections to char characters we've already been introduced to. But yeah, it's like it's just a great little thing of like at one of the booths, there's like two or three navy officers. It looks like they all have the same blue suit on, the same one a major Briggs has. Oh yeah, huh? Just great little. Like they wander in while Shelly and Norma talk, and one of them is like entering behind as Shelly's progressing to with Norma towards the back of the diner. Just great little, little note. And then we get the doppelganger Maddie coming into the diner as well, looking like a ghost, and yeah. James is sort of taken immediately by her. And it's creating yet another wedge more drama being yeah and he's kind of he's being aloof with donna and then Im immediately when he tells her that like oh I, I don't know i'm not in the right place maybe he's like in fact so infatuated with uh maddie because of her likeness to laura and then norma gets a call and yeah and we, get, we get another little good moment between uh ben and audrey in the following scene at the great northern where Ben's still trying to strike up that deal that mm. he had in the previous episodes. 
<laughs> we get a little bit more dialogue between him and Jerry, albeit Jerry off screen. And Audrey's sort of uh, spinning her web in this scene a bit. She's uh, playing the card of the the child returning to the parent, you know, for you know, wanting to take on the roles that their parents want for them and all these sorts of responsibilities, but for her own agenda. So. And yeah, there's a photo of, I think it's Laura and Audrey. Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah. With all the context, it's a lot darker. Uh, they have this one really cool shot uh, when Ben answers the phone and then Audrey's in the background and he kind of dismisses her with that split diopter framing. Mm, yeah, that the Yeah, there's that blur line between them. Mm -hmm. I always love when that comes up in in any form of media where it's it just creates like such a uncomfortable framing where we're being given all of the information but we're being told not to at the same time, like it just creates like so much suspense. Definitely makes the scene unsettling, especially with the bed in the foreground covered in sweat. And then Gordon calls one more time, and oh, yeah. he's uh, created, he's letting uh, Coop know that Albert created a reconstruction of the plastic object that was found in Laura's stomach. Uh, also figured out the bites in the shoulders were made by the bird for sure this time. And then we have like a complete tonal shift where they are finally having some sort of action in following up leads of uh, certain suspects. You know, we start off uh, at a hotel, you know, some people playing tennis, and then all of a sudden an immediate shift with like a little stinger that goes on Coop's face and they're all rushing the hotel or like apartment the bird, it looks like I like the bird's also Waldo oh yeah <laughs> it is isn't Waldo, it yeah a little where's Waldo joke thrown in there and then yeah they're, they're sprinting through there's a there's a light behind the hotel clearly set up to create like a moonlight energy <laughs> and then we see Bobby planting Leo's bloody shirt in Jacques Renault's apartment, printing oh, yes. off. Hawks in pursuit. I was wondering how much they saw of Bob, Bobby. Oh, like as he was running away? Yeah, was it just like, oh, there's a guy running in the woods, or was it like, oh, it's Bobby? That's always. I don't think they recognized him. Yeah, I don't think they recognized him either, because before they did, he ran off into the woods or something. Yeah. It's definitely not Jacques. Jacques's not running that fast. Yeah, the evidence is planted kind of sloppily. <laughs> and then, and it, then... it reaches that crescendo. We see the red Corvette, mm -hmm. Leo Johnson smoking, and then uh, Ben tapping on the shoulder. <laughs> I love Ben's little digs that he makes at people. It's like, nice touch, nice touch. Bright red sports car for a secret meeting. Nice. Then <laughs> Leo's like trying to try to gain some leverage, brings up the dead guy next to him. <laughs> yeah. But, but Ben keeps at it. Mm. He, he pulls it back, but he's still like he's still like it's just do the job. Just do the deal. And make it look the right way. Don't announce you did it. We don't want the heat. Then you have some great nighttime. Especially in this wood scene. It's f I don't know what it is. I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. There's so much more lights on the Benjamin. Leo meeting. Than like mm -hmm. the Leo and Bobby and Mike mm -hmm. with the football meeting. Like that was like pitch black. Leo had a flashlight that was like a spotlight to interrogate everyone. But like in this one, the tension's lower. Mm -hmm. 
So it's yeah, if you if you, it, I'm looking at stills now, there's like so many orange lights hitting different trees hitting different everything. Yeah, it feels much more illuminated for sure. And I, I love the fact that um, even when Leo and Ben are near the river, we can see a bit of reflection on them as well. It's such a nice little touch. And then we get a very quiet but tense meeting between Donna and James when they find out that the other half of the necklace was dug up. And then um, we get a little bit more insight on Sarah and, Lo and Laura from Donna uh, in terms of these visions that they are connected to. And she talks about how Miss Palmer used to be able to see things and that uh, Laura used to say that Sarah was spooky and that she used to see things in dreams. And it's a nice little parallel between the between mother and daughter, you know, having this sort of ethereal ability to see different things through the power of dreams. It almost reminds me of Paul and Dune having prescience to be able to see the future, but this time in Twin Peaks it's it's much more of a of like an archaic form of prescience of just seeing uh objects and symbols in relation to what fate has in store for them. Much like an oracle. And then all of a sudden we get, you know, the owls, or one of the, or a single owl making itself known to them. And then we get a nice little snap zoom from its perspective. Yeah. And it, so it's sort right of. Right above them, above where the locket used to be, is the owl. It's setting up this nice little uh, motif of somebody, or uh, basically like the the hidden eyes of Twin Peaks, you know, observing everyone and everything that is a part of it. So it's like no secret can is truly secret in in this town. And then we get a nice little uh, moment between Pete and Josie. I that that. I want to talk about that goat. <laughs> that horrible. Oh, in the transition. Yeah, that horrible, horrible goat in the transition. Yeah. It looks like a dog. Mixed yeah, this looks like real. <laughs> Unsettling. It's like a goat with like an elk face or elk skull. And then it's it's a uh, two front legs are formed in like a holster for a rifle. Yeah, underneath it's holding it. the gun. Yeah, it's holding the rifle that was used to kill it or something. Yeah. Oh, that's so bad. It's a good little like, oh, it's Americana, but it's also very morbid and like unnatural and unnerving. Mm -hmm. Like pitch black eyes, face is kind of elongated. For like what I like, that looks fake as hell. I'm going to keep ranting about that. And then yeah, Pete doing his little flirt thing. Like, is Catherine asleep? And she's like, yeah. He's like, good. And then give me some mayo on that sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's such like a sweet little invitation that he has. To, uh, asking Josie to accompany him in this uh, fishing tournament that's coming up. But at the same time, you can clearly see that, you know, Pete has other motives. You know, trying to find some sort of fulfillment that he isn't getting in his own marriage. And then we get uh, a letter addressed to uh, Josie in the shape of a domino. Clearly from Hank and, you know, while he was in prison. Oh, yeah. And then we get yet another uh, noir type shot. Yeah, two where, Dutch angles. Yeah, where it's the, the, the bear in this very ferocious stance. We get the phone call ringing, and then Josie like whips her head. Then it's a nice little rack focus to her. We see all the books illuminated and a little clock inside of that little glass case. Which is catching light, like a thing. 
And then Hank doing something pretty funny. <laughs> he puts the domino in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's like sucking on it. <laughs> and it's I like the little framing device that they use between or behind the bars of the prison cell too. In this oh, moment. Yeah. So many good moves. Some of them are cheesier, like the last shot. Yeah, where it's like zooming in on her and she yeah, like grabs herself like on the shoulders. The Dutch angle zoom. That's what I believe that's what it's called, right? When it's sideways like this. Yeah, yeah, Dutch angle. Like this is where it's kinda heavy handed. <laughs> like yeah, they, it's just so many other good shots this whole episode. Yeah, they really hone in on the uh invitation to love mock-up in this episode. It almost feels much more melodramatic than the series itself. Well, there's just so many, yeah. And, yeah, the the contrast between the two. Like, when Jacoby's doing the the, uh, illusion, the golf balls. Is that wide of Cooper at the uh, far end of the table. Just fingers folded. The Hank normal one jumps to mind. Shelly Bobby have some great, like, close two shots. The whole basement lighting and angle. So many great, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to focus on the cinematography. Because it feels like in this episode, it's doing a lot of legwork in a good way. Yeah, like at the end of this episode, we're sort of left once again on a cliffhanger ending of you know all these different points of interest sort of coming to an coming to a head uh, and I feel like a lot of it rests on Hank uh, reintegration back into the town of Twin Peaks like a lot of a lot of things are hinging on this as well as uh, seeds that have been planted with a uh, you know Cooper and Truman finding Leo's shirt inside of Jacques Renault's apartment, as well as, you know, James and Donna trying to piece together how the necklace was found, and Maddie's introduction as well. Yeah, a lot of strange different things going on in this episode, and I have a certain feeling that the next episode is probably... I, I If I remember correctly... It is my favorite episode of the season. Uh, I'm hoping it is, because if it's what I'm thinking of, I'm excited. Yeah, did you did you have any closing thoughts on this episode, Pat? Uh, it's not, it, it feels... I think the big takeaway for me is we're on episode five of eight. I believe, even though the, the numbers are a little different. Yeah, the, the naming conven convention of the season is, uh, I feel like it's it's changed, but or it's different because of the pilot episode. Like, yeah. I, I think that that serves as like an episode zero type of thing. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're already towards the end ish, kind of. We're in the second half. We're yeah, we're almost halfway through the second half, even with the episode, next episode being halfway through the half. <laughs> we're almost three fourths of the way through and we'll, I feel like there's so much more. That's me. Maybe I'm conflicting some of season two with season one because there's kind of overlaps. It feels like before there's a change in the tones. Mm. But yeah, I'm just I'm looking forward to so many moments. If you've been listening this far, thank you so much for continuing to join us on this journey into this brilliant and surreal series. Um, it makes me have like a newfound appreciation for the sort of classic Americana that Lynch has always tried to incorporate into his work while also critiquing it. And if you want to follow along with us uh, even more so, you can do so at uh, on our Instagram page. It, our handle is Lathom Podcast. And if you ever want to write into us, you can do so at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Send us any sort of feedback, any, any sort of thoughts, whatever, whatever you want. But um, yeah, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you on the next one. You ever been married, Cooper? No. I knew someone once who helped me understand commitment. 
responsibilities and the risks. Who taught me the pain of a broken heart. One woman can make you fly like an eagle. Another can give you the strength of a lion. But only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and the wisdom that you have known a singular joy. I wrote that for my girlfriend. Local gal? Diane Shapiro, PhD Brandeis, 